Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, March 22nd, 2013. This week, episode 278 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. Still snow on the mountain up here. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and joining me with uh, uh, news from Studio C down in the McKees Rocks area of Pittsburgh is the Z Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hey, Joe. Uh, no snow on the ground, but we got a, a little bit of a flurry going on now, a lot of wind. It's a tough second or third day, whatever it is, of spring up here on the mountain, but we'll get by. At the controls is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender. Hello. And joining us later will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and Pete Consigli will be back, the, uh, the global watchdog. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question. We've got an interesting interview today. I'm, I'm not sure how many folks are familiar with the Code Blue group, but we've got Paul Gross from the, the Code Blue group. He's the president and CEO. Looking forward to talking about some issues with respect to insurance coverage and insurance programs and management of insurance programs. Should be a fascinating show. We'll have our halftime as usual, and then, of course, we'll go back to the interview and finish with the roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. To listen to the show, just follow the link on your show invitation or at the top of the iaqradio.com webpage. It says go to show. You can also stream past shows directly from our website homepage or download shows by following that same link, go to show. And you can then right click on the download button on TalkShoe and download those shows to your favorite MP3 player. We're also available on iTunes. Don't forget, we also have certification maintenance points, continuing education credits, and renewal credits from 
A-B-I-H-I-I-C-R-C, and the A-C-A-C. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Andy Krozowski, Comcast Metal Products, Mars PA, for being first with the answer to last week's trivia question, uh, recording 940 millibar, also 27.76 inches of mercury as the lowest pressure recorded during Hurricane Sandy. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, March 22nd, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. Code blue is generally used to indicate a patient requiring resuscitation or otherwise in need of immediate medical attention, most often as the result of a respiratory arrest or cardiac arrest. Name the hospital at which the phrase was coined. Back to you, Joe. Oh, good one, Cliff. And then good to see Andy back. Uh, I know he was in a couple close battles here the last few weeks, so we'll see if he can beat out the competition again this week. Today's guest is Paul Gross, the president and CEO of Insurance Claim Management, the parent company to Code Blue. Paul has emerged as an industry thought leader and a regular presenter at insurance and contractor industry events because of his ability to challenge the conventional wisdom and engineer better approaches to claims management. Under his leadership, Code Blue has focused on measuring, managing, and evaluating claims while staying focused on the fact that every premium-paying policyholder must be represented in the process. This unique business model creates competition within each category of claims for superior results through speed, science, and service. Paul has grown the business to include two command centers, one in Euclid, Wisconsin, and the other one in Springfield, Ohio, and over 400 employees now. He's got over two decades of experience creating, owning, and operating several highly successful business operations across industries, including the auto glass industry. And prior to joining ICM and Code Blue, he acted as an executive consultant to Harmon Auto Glass and a vice president at Safelight Auto Glass, where he was also a member of their executive committee. We look forward to a great discussion of more current trends and macro trends with respect to the insurance industry. I think we have some music for Paul. 
Yo, listen up, here's the story about a little guy that lives in a blue world. And all day and all night and everything he sees is just blue, like him inside and outside. Blue his house with a blue little window and a blue corvette and everything is blue for him and himself and everybody around cause he ain't got nobody to listen I'm blue, I've been beat, Got a little blue music for Paul. Good day, Paul. Do we have you on the line? You bet, Joe. Glad to be here. <laughs> great, great, great to have you. I guess you're just back from the PLRB uh, conference in what Boston? Can you tell us a little bit about what I, I've not been to that conference? What exactly is the PLRB, Paul? PLRB is uh, Property uh, uh, Research Bureau. Law um, research Bureau. Uh, yeah, Property Loss Research Bureau. Thank you. Um, and uh, really what it is, is it, uh, it's uh, an insurance community function that invites uh, contractors um, of all sorts, service providers of all sorts, to uh, display their uh, wares while these uh, carriers are getting their continuing education and they have a you know, deep agenda and so forth. And um, in total, oh, I, I suppose there were probably close to 2,800 people at the event in Boston between uh, insurance company employees and uh, contractors as large as Belfour down to, you know, local providers in the in the Boston market. So uh, it's a big, big event. Yeah, sounds like it. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about Code Blue. We want to get, like, kind of set the background and then go into some more insurance type trends and the, the macro issues with respect to water damage and insurance first can you tell us a little bit about what code blue is and then maybe you know how you came up with the idea for developing if it was your idea i really don't know paul sure so you know code blue is effectively a bridge a bridge between uh, the policy holder the carrier and the contractor and i'll expound on you know really where we got uh you know the concept from um, we run these command centers that uh, take millions of calls per year on behalf of policyholders experiencing a loss. And uh, one evening back in May of '04, I was sitting at the call center listening into a phone call at about 10 minutes till 10, and a homeowner was calling their carrier to express um, a need for uh, mitigation services. And uh, we would have those calls forwarded to us. We'd take what is referred to as the first notice of loss um, and then push it back to the carrier to let them know that um, that they had a need. And in this particular case, the carrier uh, advised us to tell the policyholder that someone would get back to them on Monday morning before noon. Hmm. Now, bear in mind, it's it's Friday evening, right? Yeah. Policyholder was not particularly thrilled with this and asked that we elevate it to call an adjuster. And uh, while that was out of protocol, we did it. And the adjuster got the call and said, what the heck are you calling me for? Uh, you know, I only take emergency claims. What do you want me to do? Suck the water out of the rug myself? I'm at Applebee's with my family. So <laughs> you could tell that he was agitated and, and really uh, Code Blue was born that day because we saw an opportunity uh, to address a problem as it relates to providing more timely service to the policyholder 
better communications between the carrier and the contractor and really, um, you know, uh, developing a collaborative approach for uh, managing and mitigating these losses uh, in a way that, uh, frankly, had just not uh, been a part of how these uh, homeowner losses were handled. That's interesting. So you were essentially a call center, is that accurate to say, before this vision? Right. We were a call center that focused mostly on auto claims. So, you know, by way Uh of contrast and comparison, if that same policyholder would have been calling to get their a rock chip in their windshield, which is by no means as urgent um, as this water loss, if they would have been calling to get a rock chip repaired, we would have uh, taken the first notice of loss, we would have uh, validated coverage, and then we would have conferenced in a local glass provider in their market who would have been to the policyholder's home the next day um, and repaired the windshield. So it was a much, uh, you know, the auto process was much more efficient, uh, much swifter, uh, you know, much less clumsy. And so really what we did is we took that model and we said, hey, we can provide a better service outcome for these policyholders the carriers, even the contractors, uh, if we engineer a more efficient mousetrap. That's fascinating. What year was this when you were talking about with this particular call? Do you remember? May of 2004. Okay, so not too terribly long ago. Interesting. All right. Cliff? Um, I guess uh, there's a term utilized in the industry as third-party administrator. Uh, I guess it's really a two-part question. Would that be a fair way to categorize your organization? And if you could expound, if that is correct, can you explain to the office or to the audience what a third-party administrator actually does? Sure, Cliff. Thank you. Um, Yes, we are a third-party administrator. And uh, you know, uh, I, I guess an important dynamic to being a true third-party administrator is one where the provider uh, of administrative services um, is not a doesn't have a first-party interest in the outcome of the claim. In other words, um, there are other networks of contractors, i.e., a ServPro or Service Master, which have a first-party interest in the outcome of the claim through, you know, providing their services on site. So um, the the differential part is um, a third party is viewed to be, um, you know, a neutral objective um, participant in the claims uh, adjudication process that can evaluate, um, you know, the the issues that a policyholder may cite, that a carrier may be concerned with, or that a contractor may be concerned with. So as a third party administrator, we are sort of air traffic control, if you will, to managing all of the stakeholders in that process. So let me see if I have this. You also, I guess, um, qualify the contractors that are called in on these projects. Is that accurate to say? Right. We have a we have an algorithm that is uh, that we've sought um, and then granted trademark uh, protection on that really identifies all of the facets of what we consider to be a a key part of the value proposition. And the value proposition should not be diminished to thinking about cost and price and things of that nature. Certainly, the cost of the services is one component, but we measure things like from the time that we initiate the first notice of loss 
How long does it take that provider to be ringing the policyholder's doorbell? How we, we survey 100% of the policyholders that we manage claims for, and so we effectively become, oh, say, the Angie's list of the insurance industry by getting feedback from those policyholders and having them rate and assess the quality of the technician. Did they show up on time? Were they in uniform? Did they, you know, manage the home with care? Uh, you know, were, were, was the policyholder pleased with the services? And again, we do this from a neutral and objective perspective um, without any bias towards wanting one provider or another out there. Uh, we look at how often they uh, pursue what we might consider unnecessary demolition or reconstruction. Um, you know, how well is the scope uh, written and managed and things of that nature? What certifications do their technicians have? Uh, what kind of equipment and capacity do they have? Uh, so we have all kinds of various assessments that we look at to identify who the best provider is in this algorithm. And then we, you know, have neutral administration of that to make sure that each policyholder is effectively getting the benefit of the doubt uh, when it comes to uh, getting a referral inside of their local market area. Cliff? Okay. Um, I guess training is an important part of your program, and we know that you have two training houses in which you teach uh, contractors and insurance uh, claim handling professionals, uh, you know, you demonstrate for them and teach the contractors uh, these specific procedures. What's different and unique about what you train that would not be trained in other and you know in, in competitive uh, training programs that strictly deal with contractors? Okay, well, so I guess to to shape a little bit of color on that, we believe that science is important, right? And I think that any time that we see um, a debate within the industry, it's when we um, uh, deviate a bit from the science of how can you prove and demonstrate what the best approach to managing or mitigating a loss would be. So to the extent that we believe in science, we have built these two structural drying laboratories um, one in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and one in Springfield, Ohio, each of them built on a college campus for, at the local technical college. And the uh, local technical college is actually an active participant in our training programs and, and processes and things. And so what we've tried to do is engineer these structures, first off, outdoors. These are not, if you believe in science, you have to apply all of the natural conditions of the outdoor elements. So they're built outside. They're built with uh, full basements, areas where there's a slab underneath parts of the home, other areas where there's a call, crawl space, lath and plaster, sheetrock, you name it, different kinds of insulation to see how each of these different material uh, types respond to the drying process. And then we bring equipment in from manufacturers from throughout the entire industry, whether that's for heat drying, uh, conventional um, drying, you name it, we take a look at all of that equipment and then we um, identify which equipment performs best. So we don't have a bias towards a specific brand or color. 
We just take a look at the performance of the equipment through objective assessments, and then we provide these facilities really as learning laboratories for any of these stakeholders. In other words, you will come to a training class and it will have contractors that have been in the business for 20 years, business owners, their technicians, insurance executives and their adjusters, employees of ours. So it's a great mix of all of those folks. And we just allow the facts to be presented in a way that's indisputable because we take a house that has just been flooded with 1,500 or 2,000 gallons of water over a couple uh, day period. And then we allow them to go to work to drying it. And then we're measuring and testing every device and the, uh, the inside of that structure as well. Paul, while you're doing this, this training, I, I'm just curious, what, what are some of the things um, that have surprised you or made you change the way you think or the way Code Blue responds to water damage as the result of doing this training? Well, I, I'll give two examples, and I believe we have Ed Jones on as well that he, he might weigh in uh, with, with his perspective uh, in addition to this. But, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, one of the things that have come out that I consider to be, you know, profound is there are certain pieces of equipment, and I, I won't name them here because I'm not trying to pitch one product versus another, but there are certain pieces of equipment that when we – um, you know, take the discharge uh, on, a, on a dehumidifier and we uh, wrap it to a Culligan bottle and make sure that we're identifying exactly how well that item is performing, how that piece of equipment is performing. We find there are some pieces of equipment that are commonly used that do not work, oh, say, in the second day of drying, literally just not pulling any water, extracting any moisture from the air. I would say on the flip side, uh, that we evaluate, um, you know, the evolving heat drying process, for instance, and I view it a little bit like the ethanol industry. It, it, it's gone from um, uh, an imperfect uh, process that is getting much better, and we're seeing new developments and enhancements, and it's really, you know, starting to emerge as a, you know, reasonable alternative um, to, you know, some of the other drying techniques that we see out there. Now, we don't, we don't endorse a, uh, a certain process, if you will. We try to stay to that science uh, where we're measuring, um, you know, the, the technical side of this uh, job and then really allow the contractor and the adjuster and, and our employees or the claims managers to witness and experience this outcome in real time and in real life and let them have a conversation about how to best get that policyholder back to their pre-loss condition in the fastest, most efficient, and least disruptive manner possible. And the, the, the training sessions really facilitate that. And so when I say we're really a bridge between it, it's the only training environment that I'm aware of anywhere in the world that brings that kind of chemistry together when everybody comes and provided they can agree to the common goal, that is bringing the policyholder back to their you know, pre-loss condition in the fastest, most efficient, and least disruptive manner possible, where the facts start to become self-evident and uh, as we observe the science 
at work. And I think that's healthy for the entire industry because historically there's been too much we, they, and finger pointing and, you know, questioning others' motives and agendas and things of that nature. And so, you know, we, we find it very refreshing and, you know, we do this training once, twice a month and, you know, it, it really, it, it's refreshing each class because you get to hear new stories and uh, really foster this collaboration within the industry. Cliff, did you have a follow-up on that? I, and then I, we I could do bring a follow-up. Follow follow. uh, earlier, uh, when you were discussing the performance algorithm, you know, one of the things that you said was um, a metric that you measured was unnecessary demolition. And, you know, I suspect that in the training that you do, um, you know, in, in certain situations, there, there's a trade-off. You know, we can do a certain amount of minor demolition that, uh, you know, floating carpet, removing base moldings, and, 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 and so on and so forth. And what that can do is result in a shorter drying period or we have the alternative of not doing that and, and drying things in place. And, you know, when we dry things in place, it may take longer, and the equipment rental charges, uh, you know, may actually be higher. Uh, and, you know, the, person, uh, the family may be out of the home, you know, potentially for a longer period of time. How do you handle that? You know, how do you handle... Uh, what demolition is necessary and, and when is, when does that demolition save money? So, uh, you know, I, I think this goes back to uh, the science and, you know, we really pride ourselves on three elements in terms of, you know, being an effective third party administrator. We deliver extraordinary speed that starts with getting somebody to the house quicker and answering those phone calls in real time. And then immediately patching in the contractor via a three-way call and tracking how long it takes them to get to the door. And when we talk about speed, we also are measuring how quickly can we get them out of the house because we've found that the policyholders want two things. They want to see how quickly you can get a, a, a contractor to their house. And then after they're there, they want to see how quickly you can get them out of their house because it's sort of an invasive, uh, you know, personal experience and they, they don't really want strangers in their home for any longer than they need. In order to facilitate the getting them out quicker, we apply an extraordinary uh, amount of science and we think when that's done properly, you get extraordinary service. And so we pride ourselves on extraordinary speed, extraordinary science and extraordinary service to pull all of this together. And so when you ask a technical question, we take a look at the obvious factors. You know, what, what was the source of the water? Is it clean water, gray water, black water? And each of those is going to have an implication as to how we might prescribe, um, uh, you know, the, the, the mitigation of that particular job. How long has the water been standing there? Uh, if we have a clean water loss, it's obviously uh, five days old. Uh, we've got you know, a different uh, dynamic than if we've got a clean water, water loss that we've uh, received within the last few hours. And so that's where we apply the science, and the science um, is in large part predicated off of the S500 ANSI standard and uh, adherence to that and uh, other scientific studies that have been 
conducted, um, you know, within the industry. So when it uh, relates to items such as floating carpet, you know, there's an ALS study that demonstrated that that can cause delamination. So, you know, you won't get us to uh, support floating carpet on a clean water loss. I mean, clearly, if, if you've got uh, black water, we're going we're gonna to tear that out altogether. But we're going to look at the contributing factors. And, and for every item that um, is a known factor, that's going to help govern what is the scientifically best way to mitigate this particular loss. Cliff, you have another one? Um, I, I, I guess I, I do. Um, you know, you would use the word science and science and science and over and over and over again. And then finally, I think you said that you know a lot of the science comes out of ICRC S five hundred water damage standard. I guess if the science within that document was proven to be technically flawed. Um, would this affect, how would this affect your program? You know, um, first off, I think the, the, the key behind science is that you have to make sure that it isn't technically flawed, right? And then you have to objectively assess each of those uh, dynamics. So, for instance, um, you know, the S500 standard is a big document, right? It's it's not a single item. It's not a single concept or thesis. It's you know, it's a series of information brought together in a manner that the industry collaborated around, in terms of gathering feedback and making sure that all of the right parties and stakeholders were contributing to that. And so, to the extent that there are components of that that are um, not scientifically um, uh, discernible or accurate, then you know I- any good objective um, you know scientist is going to look at that. Uh, think of uh, uh, think of the uh, rover we just put on Mars. You know, for years scientists have determined that there either was or wasn't life on Mars, and then we put uh, Curiosity up on this planet, and we started taking soil samples, and we're trying to determine if there's organic matter and if there's uh, ice or um, forms of, um, uh, of water. And so, you know, you learn more with the passage of time about science, and you get additional data points thanks to things like discovery or uh, Curiosity. Um, and the same applies in any industry, um, whether that is the science of a human body or the science of drawing, as we refer to it as here. But clearly, uh, I, I guess, um, Cliff, the, the direct answer is that you can't take the entire body of work and say it is um, either entirely adequate or entirely inadequate. You have to take a look at components therein and say, uh, where is there an opportunity to take whatever data points we might have today that wasn't available uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago or wh- whatever that period is and make sure that you have a good, strong adherence uh, of applying uh, that science. And, you know, I think you made reference to not only changes in it, but um, uh, issues around the ANSI accreditation. And, uh, you know, the ANSI accreditation, in my mind, is of paramount importance because that illustrates um, that the right approach towards 
gathering that science is in place. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure that everything we do is done in a uh, um, scientifically accurate manner. Thanks. You know, we, we usually stop for halftime right now, but what I'd like to do is get Paul Jones on the line. I, now, I wasn't prepared. Ed. I don't, I'm sorry, Ed? Um, I'm sorry, Ed Jones? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. I, we weren't. I wasn't sure if he was going to join us or not. But Ed, I just wanted to ask: could you, could you maybe uh, add anything to Paul's answer to the previous question, where we asked about anything that came out of the training that you know kind of changed the way you thought about um, water damage restoration? Sure, sure. Can you hear me? Okay. We hear you fine. And thanks for joining us, Ed. Sure, sure. I thought, uh, you know, Paul covered most of the points there, but I did have a couple of small additions that I think uh, really surprised me uh, because, of course, I come from a contractor background who's been in the business for over 27 years and, you know, kind of felt the same uh, pain of and, and, and the toughness of changing with the industry as it evolved over a long period of time as everybody else has that's been a contractor. And a couple of things, as the IICRC approved instructor for these courses for COBU that, that surprised me is I got to, and really very fortunate to, to talk to hundreds of adjusters, uh, hundreds of, you know, claims professionals, as well as contractors and third-party administrators, and here are their challenges, here are their stories, here are their perspectives of all these different controversial types, uh, whether it be drying technology or pieces of equipment or whatever. But two things that I really... Uh, realized after, you know, one way to learn this stuff, and I'm sure, you know, Cliff could go you know, back this up, but one way to really learn something is become an instructor and have to teach it. You know, so I was really learning more uh, than my students in many cases, hearing from them and trying to uh, use that information in a way that it helped make Code Blue that much better. But two things that I realized real quickly is, one, I found out that we were able to, in a real-life controlled situation, as Paul described, saved a lot more materials than I ever thought possible, meaning I always thought I had to pull baseboards and drill holes to be able to dry out an exterior wall assembly with uh, wet insulation. I thought that had to be done. And then we actually proved that it didn't necessarily have to be done every time. Same thing with the drilling holes and toe kicks and drawing underneath cabinets or replacing wood flooring or, you know, there's a, you know, a dozen different examples in the floodhouse where we always took the approach yeah, here's the available science today. Here's what the S-500, you know, is, is actually recommending. And then here's how we've applied that in a real-life experiment to see how it works, always taking the approach of having the least invasive uh, method possible. So I, where I used to remove, for uh, example, remove the stove and the refrigerator to be able to dry underneath them better. I eventually tried it without moving the stove and refrigerator because, quite honestly, that's a lot of trouble to move and some liability involved in moving that stove and refrigerator. And guess what? We ended up drying it without moving it. So since then, we've changed. The same thing with a lot of other uh, uh, tests that we've run there. And the other area that I found that's very interesting that goes on today uh, in every class, just as recently as two weeks ago, I had uh, 21 uh, people, uh, a good mix of contractors and adjusters and co-blue employees in the class. Uh, I always hand out a, an Xactimate a sketch of our flood house, the basement, the crawl space, and the, the main floor, about 1,800 square feet, and have them walk through that flooded structure, which has been sitting wet at a high temperature 
really trying to exacerbate the condition. And I say, okay, if you're experienced today, I want you to tell me how you drive a house. You tell me where to set air movers, where to set dehumidifiers, if you're going to use air filtration devices or not, what kind of containments you're going to use, what kind of meters you're going to use. And I have them put that all down on this sheet as an exercise at the very beginning of the class. And then I collect all that information and over the next two days evaluate it and then hand back out to them and actually show them the wide disparity we have, even among uh, technicians of the same company or adjusters of the same carrier. And I was coming in, I mean, just to quote you some numbers from my very last class, some contractors felt like we should have two dehumidifiers in the house and 74 air movers, where very same company would go with four air or dehumidifiers, 48 air movers. And I actually had some people say, well, we needed 15 dehumidifiers and only 21 air movers. I guess my point is there's a lot of disparity in the industry because obviously any standards is open to interpretation, whether that be on category and class or amount of equipment, say, initially. I think you've got to provide an environment to bring those uh, different perspectives together, and that's our goal there. So we discussed that in that class and had a very healthy discussion about, okay, here's what we think would be best to, to meet three criteria. One, what's going to dry the most material and save them without having to take them out? Two, what's going to get that policyholder and their family back to normal as quickly as possible so we can get out of here? And three, what's going to be the most cost-effective manner to arrive there? As, as Paul said, we have no skin in that game. I don't care if it's uh, heat drying or using low-grade refrigerants or desiccants or whatever the deal is. We're going to use them all because we want to evaluate what's best for the policy owner. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate your your uh, your view on that, Ed. That was very interesting, and it's always good to have the contractor's perspective in there. I've got another question for you, but first we, let's go to our break. We've got to thank our sponsors here. We're going to take about a 90-second break, and we'll return with Paul Gross and Ed Jones from the uh, Code Blue folks and uh, Water Mitigation Service discussion here today. It's been fascinating so far. We look forward to more in 90 seconds. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. 
John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, this is Radio Joe Hughes back with today's guests. We've got Paul Gross and Ed Jones from Code Blue. Before we went on break, Ed, you had mentioned an 1,800-square-foot home you flood, and you had different numbers of dehumidifiers and air movers that uh, people projected, I guess, would be used or that they would typically use on that type of project. And we saw numbers from a couple of dehumidifiers and 70-some air movers down to, you know, a little closer spread, I guess, about, uh, I don't remember the exact number, but, you know, four or five dehumidifiers and then 30 or so air movers. What, I'm just curious, in your experience, what is the approximate right number on those two pieces of equipment in that particular scenario? Sure, sure. And, you know, without going into the, like I said, we take that S-500 standard and use as ANSI-approved standards as a guide. And then you take that data and that information that's been scientifically uh, tested, and then we take it and test it ourselves to identify what's best. In other words, if I say it takes two uh, extra-large low-grain refrigerant dehumidifiers for the first-floor drying chamber, is it better to set them closer together or further apart? Is it better to take off doors and remove them, or is it better to just pop the doors open? Can you share the same air when you have a large drying chamber? I mean, there's so many variables there that we actually have a chance to test in our environment. So I guess my point is, instead of just giving you numbers, which really won't mean much to the audience unless they've been there, it comes down to a taking the information available to the industry, including the ANSI standards, and then applying it to real life in test conditions over and over again. One of our uh, flood houses up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, uh, we actually have flooded now over 47 times, and they all flooded for the 48th time. Same carpet, same pad, same drywall, same hardwood flooring, never have pulled the baseboard one and drilled any holes, and have different types of insulation in the walls and so on. But as far as amount of equipment, we have that healthy discussion, and we show them what Code Blue's policy, and we'll develop a Code Blue policy that says our third-party administrators, our mitigation specialists, we call them, are working with a contractor. Remember, this is a partnership. We're in this together. We wouldn't have sent them out there if we didn't think they knew what they were doing, and they have to be certified in water damage in order to be able to even be eligible. And then we have a discussion using their eyes and ears and nose that's going to say, hey, I think this is a Category 1, Class 2, for instance. And then that's going to dictate, as we have that discussion with the contractor, take, you know, evaluating the recommendations to come up with the right number. And that can vary. But we're going to use a, the science as our guiding principle there. Okay. I just thought that the 72 air movers sounded like uh, a bit of a stretch, but maybe I was wrong. I don't know, Ed. <laughs> well, actually, it's, 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 that particular scenario, it's, two dehumidifiers in the first floor chamber, one dehumidifier in the basement chamber, and one, 
I think in most cases, we're either using heat drying or desiccant drying in the crawl space. So we're trying to use different drying technologies to show the students. Okay. And uh, typically, it's just one of those units in the crawl space. And then as far as air movers, uh, we've tested, was it better to focus them at the ceiling in the basement, or is it better to focus them down at the walls, and all those little nuances. And generally, if that's going to be, depending upon that situation and the saturation, it's going to be around 30 air movers. Is what is about normal for that large residential uh, you know, test bar. Okay. Well, that helps. All right. Great. Thank you, Ed. Cliff, did you want me to go ahead, or do you have another follow-up? No, actually, uh, I do, and I was thinking about changing subject, uh, if if we might. Uh, Paul, how does Code Blue generate income, and what are the costs for contractor enrollment and ongoing participation in your program? So um, we um, view the insurance company as the customer because they're paying us a fee uh, to administer these losses, an administrative fee, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, that uh, is, is where we define uh, that carrier is, is the basis of our definition of them being um, the customer. And uh, contractors are open to join the program uh, without any cost to them whatsoever. Um, there are other programs that charge a, a franchise fee, a royalty, a claims referral fee, a percentage of the job. We truly uh, have an open program where contractors are able to submit. We have a base price list for everything, and they submit uh, what they think is responsible in their market. So in other words, if they price themselves too high, it's unlikely we'll use them. If they price themselves too low, it's unlikely they'll make money. And uh, so, you know, they're competing directly with the uh, peers in their marketplace. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, price is just one component of that value proposition. Uh, but, uh, you know, there is no charge to them to participate in the program. It's based on free market economics. Is your fee to insurance company flat rate per claim or does it – uh, you know, some claims you know could be huge, some could be small. You know, residential, commercial. How does that break out? It is a flat rate per claim, but we have a couple different categories of uh, rate basis, right? So if they use one of our network contractors, it's going to be a lesser rate than if we're managing an insured hired contractor that's not a participant, where we might have to you know pull teeth to get the daily moisture readings and metrics on that loss. Paul, what I'd like to do is maybe go to more of the macro trends in insurance coverage on these water damage jobs. I'm just curious. You you know, you deal with these all the time and at a level where you're seeing a lot of different projects. Can you give us some, some different trends that you see either developing now or that have recently developed that maybe our listeners aren't aware of? Sure. Um, so, you know, I think it's important for, for all of your listeners and all participants in this business to really understand that, you know, the basic law of physics for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That's, that's always going to apply in insurance. And uh, so, you know, if there are issues that are creating an unfavorable um, impact on a carrier, um, carriers are run by pretty smart, sophisticated people. 
they'll start to manage those issues by, you know, I'll use uh, mold, uh, you know, used to be a, a, you know, big boon and windfall for many contractors across uh, the country and everybody, you know, it was often referred to as black mold or black gold, uh, if you will. And, and um, uh, you know, soon uh, carriers started putting strict limits on or excluding that coverage, and it went from being a windfall down to something that was either not covered or it was covered with de minimis uh, uh, limits. And so the point there is that, you know, this, this feature and function of cause and effect is something that we all need to be mindful of. In the state of Florida right now, um, you know, homeowner coverage, really no matter where you live, um, is, is just unaffordable for, the, for all of the premium paying uh, policyholders, not those who were uh, directly affected by a, a loss not those that uh, you know have had three claims because of all of these hurricanes. So you know the the way every good insurance company evaluates um, the outcome of a claim is it doesn't just affect that one homeowner or that one business. It affects the entire portfolio. So every premium paying policyholder needs to be taken into consideration when developing uh, processes. So in the state of Florida, one of those dynamics is they have this entity known as Citizens, which is basically a state-run insurer of last resort that has got an overwhelming amount of uh, policies in its portfolio. In fact, I just recently in Jacksonville, Florida, spoke with uh, on a panel with the CEO of that uh, company, and he was speaking you know, on behalf of insurance carriers, and he said, my job is to get fewer policyholders. We've got too many in our book, and we don't want so many, which is you know, unusual to hear a carrier you, you know, think that way, but it's, it's because they're the carrier of uh, last resort. And what does that mean? It means that deductibles now start to behave differently meaning that instead of having a $1,000 deductible, it's a percentage of the total loss. And when you have a percentage of a total loss, it means you might have fewer insurance claims. And so uh, in the Northeast, directly uh, following Sandy, you will see changes to coverages because of what some of the governors did to determine uh, whether this was going to be, you know, how this storm was going to be categorized. And it's almost unprecedented that a governor would say, you know, you're going to put it into this category versus that category when, again, uh, it really isn't, uh, that, that isn't the role, uh, and, and I, I would contend they don't, they don't have that authority. Um, and so what it'll do is it'll change the way carriers um, uh, write coverage and, and what they will do with their premiums, and all of that ultimately comes back and has an immediate and direct impact on the contractors and the service providers uh, for the industry. So, you know, that's just a maybe not so small list of emerging issues from, you know, the insurer of last resort um, in Florida getting more policies than what they really were ever designed to uh, service to changing deductibles, to, you know, changing coverages and, uh, you know, underwriting principles and things of that nature move uh, within all of that. So uh, it's a very dynamic marketplace and one that, um, you know, we should always be saying, hey, how do we get to the most responsible place to begin with 
so that we don't have um, a marketplace that is uh, not logical. Let me, Cliff, we've got about 10 or 9 minutes left here. I, I, do you want to do one more question before we go to Roundup, or do you want no, me to? No, I'd say go to Roundup. I'll ask my last one during Roundup, Jim. Okay, let me let me get one quick one in before the roundup, if you don't mind. Here, I want to ask Ed Jones. Ed, what are the the couple of things with respect to this? Um, uh, I, I've heard it called a couple different things: uh, top down, vortex drying, uh, where you're removing less materials and not, you know, moving, um, not pulling the carpet, etc. What are some key points that people miss when they're doing that type of drying that that you want to make sure they don't miss in the future so that there aren't problems with that type of drying. Yes. Uh, I think the way I would answer that is basically in my experience in working with a lot of adjusters and contractors in these flood houses uh, and the way I explain it to them, because invariably most of them come in with a, oh, a partial removal and replace attitude, I call it. And, of course, Code Blue was always looked at and say, okay, if this was your home, and I always like to put it in terms of it, just think about your own home. If it was flooded, how traumatic that would be and how much that's going to you know, upset your normal lifestyle with all the things you have going with your family and extracurricular events with the kids and so on. And so if that means that we can figure out a way to drive that plywood or OSB wood subfloor that's saturated underneath that really nice Saxony carpet and, and, uh, and carpet cushion, and I can dry that without ever pulling that carpet up, that's got to be a good thing. And is that, can we do that, though, in a way where it's quick, you know, meets our time requirements to get in there and out quickly? And can we do that in a way that is, uh, you know, keeping from having to remove and replace, as well as are we documented properly to prove that we actually saved the material uh, and it won't cause any microbial growth from that water loss occurrence? So we take all that into account and discuss that. And I think as we, you know, I've had those classes, I've learned a lot, and, and we keep trying to change the classes and make them better as we get feedback from our participants that actually shows let's take the least invasive approach. And I think that's the biggest dynamic I've seen out there. We're able to today, I think, with this, you know, I have to tell contractors, you know, we've got much better uh, tools in our drying toolbox than we've ever had before. Now, that's great that we have all this technology working and people keep testing it. It's kind of challenging for contractors because every manufacturer will tell you theirs is the best and how much to charge for it, how much you can make from it. But if you really put it in an unbiased situation and test it, our whole emphasis is don't remove and replace it. Let's just try it and see if it works. And if it doesn't, we'll try something else. And I think we've learned a lot from that. Okay. Let's go to the roundup, uh, Val. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. Let's go around the horn. Let's start with uh, our friend Pete Consigli. Pete uh, is joining us today with the he's our global watchdog and uh, industry uh, industry watchdog and friend of the show. Pete, any comments or questions from you? 
Well, just a couple comments. First of all, I enjoyed the dialogue. Uh, appreciated uh, uh, Ed Jones getting involved and giving his perspective as a trainer at the Floodhouse. I um, just a couple things. I'm planning on sometime this year taking a visit to uh, to go up and visit the club, uh, the uh, the, the uh, you know the Floodhouse, and uh, and sit in on the course and uh, kind of see some of the unique things that they're doing there. I do think it's a uh, a little bit different because of the mix that they have with both insurance adjusters and contractors in there. I think that makes them a little dip, a little bit different than uh, most of the other training organizations that are primarily contractors. Although you do that, get some adjuster input. Um, I uh, I think that um, you know the perspective that Code Blue has and and uh, Paul, particularly in dealing with some of those bigger Mac, I think is important for your audience. Um, to uh, to get a perspective, uh, you know, the insurance perspective, both through the third administrator, uh, you know, eyes, and, and, and in many cases, you know, Paul, in a couple of the comments really kind of try to give a little perspective of how carriers look at it since they're their primary customer, Code Blue. So I think it's uh, just good. Um, I think, uh, you know, the dialogue should probably continue. So sometime in the future, you know, you only have so much time in your show to uh, to deal with the issues, but I think a lot of important stuff was brought up, and uh, like to see the dialogue continue. So anyway, good job, guys, and um, keep it going. All right, from our restoration industry global watchdog, Pete Consiga. We've got to get some music for Pete, Val. I don't know. We'll have to get some good, uh, I don't know what, what kind of music we need for you, Pete, but maybe some Jersey Shore stuff. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's go to Cliff, I know you had one more question, and then we'll bring in Dr. Wow. Actually, I had two, but I think that that, that they're short. I guess the first one is, you know, Pittsburgh uh, city limits have Allegheny County has a population of about 300,000. The uh, metropolitan population of Pittsburgh, I guess within about 15 miles of the city, is about 2.6 million. Uh, any idea about how many contractors you would have enrolled in, in, in the city of Pittsburgh or metropolitan area? I don't have a precise number for you, Cliff, but I can tell you it's open to all of them, and we have redundant coverage in every zip code across the entire United States. So. Even in the most remote parts of uh, Wyoming on, on an Indian reservation, we will have redundant coverage of contractors that serve that because we're not, we're not trying to go into a captive audience. We're open to the entire market. So any contractor that wishes to grow their business is going to have an interest in participating in the program, and therefore you know, most entrepreneurs that I know – want to grow that business. And so I, I would say we probably have 25 participants in the greater Pittsburgh area, but that's just a guess. I don't Okay. That, I, that, that, you know, that, that's fair enough. And I, I'm glad because we do have contractors that listen and perhaps one or more of them that's not in the program will, you know, our, our hope is that they'll inquire and, um, you know, get, uh, you know, more information and uh, that, you know, it could be mutually beneficial for both your program and them. I guess my final question is, um, what do you do with catastrophic flooding? Well, that's a challenge for everyone, including Code Blue. We really focus more on ordinary, everyday water losses. When you get into catastrophic uh, flooding, first off, there's a big coverage issue, you know, uh, many times that's not going to be covered uh, as a part of an insurance loss, which is where we right. specialize. 
Secondarily, um, you've got uh, the law of supply and demand. Uh, in an ordinary circumstance, even when a hard freeze comes through and you see uh, a dramatic increase in losses, we still have you know um, every ability to you know to service that. When you have an event like Sandy or Katrina, you know th- those are issues that you know the law of supply and demand uh, the, the just doesn't work uh, to our advantage because contractors can get as much work as they want from about 100 different angles. So we tend to um, specialize in everyday occurrences, not uh, these events, which is not to say that we don't do pocket cats or, you know, like I say, deep freeze comes across or, you know, uh, regional flooding or things of that nature. But we are, we are not really a cat response company. Thanks, Paul. All right, let's go to Dr. Dietrich Wow. Hello, Dieter. We've got you on the line. I know this wasn't one of your, uh, you know, insurance isn't one of your uh, areas of tremendous interest, but a lot of science discussion today, Dieter. Any comments on what we talked about? Yeah, well, interestingly, uh, yes, that is certainly not my forte, that is for sure. But uh, I was yesterday at a seminar, and the accent there was on lawyers. And we also talked about losses, but losses due to accidents in the workplaces. Uh, and I mean, not acts of God like flooding and snow and, 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 and so on. But uh, we also <laughs> learned and we heard that a week or two ago. Uh, the insu- yeah, You better watch your insurance company. They are not your friends. That is for sure. They are not your friends. They are in the business of making money, and they make very, very good money. Um, uh, We went one step further. What do you do when you have a loss and you're not satisfied? Well, the answer is sooner or later. You do need a a medical doctor if uh, 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 there are injuries, and you need a lawyer to plow through the pile of data that were collected, and um, it, it, it gets confusing, and I think somebody who is not pursued may not know that uh, certain losses which were covered or could have been uh, covered all of a sudden are not covered. But from what I hear today, uh, we have a watchdog for doing just that, and I think that is fair. If I pay my insurance, and I have a loss, I expect the insurance to treat me fairly and do it correctly. I think that that is a fair statement, and I think that is what I do expect. So uh, we got to watch out for that. And um, I I think that was great, uh, what we heard today, uh, that we uh, uh, have to pay attention to details here. And that we have a group that is helping to bridge that gap a little bit. And uh, they're also very interested in, in having the proper science to do so. I, I think that's that's always important to know and, and great to hear. Uh, Absolutely. And Dieter, as always, thanks for joining us. We'll be back with you next week, and I'll talk to you after the show. I'm hoping, Pete, uh, thanks for joining us too, Pete. I, I'm hoping I might be able to go up and uh, check out the flood house myself you guys have up in 
uh, up in the Midwest there. I'd really be interested. I thought the uh, mix of people is probably one of the most interesting parts of what you do there, Paul. Well, great. Thank you. You're welcome anytime. Before we go, thanks for having us on. Is there anything that you'd like to add before we go, Paul or, or Ed? Well, I would, I would just like to respond to the good doctor and say I appreciate the kind words uh, with respect to the role Code Blues plays, but, but I think insurance companies have a vested interest in being your friend because it's not a good long-term business strategy for them to take people's money and not provide the service that they purport to provide. But maybe we'll cover that again on a different show. Sounds great. Ed, any final comments from you? Nope, I think it was a great experience. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining us, and I hope we uh, meet down the road. Ed, I'd like to get into your flood house one of these days and, and see exactly what it is you do up there and maybe uh, find out the names of some of this equipment that uh, doesn't, doesn't do the job as well as others. So sounds like an interesting course you do up there, and look forward to talking again. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to our guests today. We had Paul Gross and Ed Jones from the Code Blue Group, both the CEO and the gentleman who does a lot of their training for them at their two flood houses. It was a fascinating hour discussion on what Code Blue is, what they do, and what the kind of macro issues with respect to water damage restoration and insurance issues are in the industry. also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff. Great to have you back. It was good, Joe. It was an interesting show. Back to back into our respective studios here uh, after a week on the road last week. I uh, also want to thank Val Bender, uh, Roxy V at the controls. Good job, Val. Sure. Thanks, Joe. No glitches. All right. Of course, Dr. Dietrich Weil for joining us, our technical director, Pete Consigli, the global industry watchdog. Always great to have him on. And also want to make sure I thank Pete for having us uh, hook up with Paul and make sure we got him on the show. That was a great idea, Pete, and we appreciate your contributions to the show. Most importantly, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday for the next episode of IAQ Radio. I found a picture
it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.